Well, when, when I was a kid, as, uh, as kids like to do, um, my little group of friends, we were always into something new. So I remember being super into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for like a year until the Power Rangers came out. And then the Power Rangers like just blew up my love for the turtles. I'm like, the turtles are lame, mom. The rangers are cool. Uh, that gave way to superheroes, which gave way to, uh, there was a pro wrestling phase. Uh, anybody like Goldberg? Remember Goldberg? Somebody did like the Goldberg chant last service, which probably is a door of hope first. Let's, let's hope it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, what else? At some point, we ended up, you know, Star Wars, this, that. Well, there was one season I remember where our whole group of friends got into Dragon Ball Z. You remember, anybody remember Dragon Ball Z? Uh, so Dragon Ball Z was this super thing, like genetically engineered to be crack cocaine for middle school boys, where it's like these ninja guys who can summon energy balls and blast them at each other, and they're super good fighters and super weird alien creatures, and it was fascinating. Uh, and I remember, so my friends and I, we wanted to like play Dragon Ball Z, of course, and so the, the rough form of it began to take shape was essentially just us taking dodgeballs and pelting each other and saying, Kamehameha, and throwing balls at each other's faces. But I saw a better way. I saw a better way forward. Which, so I, I, I had this vision, so I got this you know, spiral notebook and a pencil, a calculator, I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, and began to write up these rules. I, I was like, this is lawlessness out here. We need to dial this thing in. And so uh, I came up with this system where we would each play a character and we had a certain number of life points, you know, like in a video game or a role-playing game and, you know, different attacks. Like on the show, a character might charge a thing for like two whole episodes before he can shoot it off. And so we're like, well, we need to incorporate a time element where you really have to charge up for more powerful attacks. Uh, and so I had this whole system and these attacks do this amount of damage and you have to like calculate your life on the fly. And uh, I had my mom take me to the store and she bought these different multicolored uh, little dodgeballs and I was like, okay, the red ones are the powerful attacks that take 10 seconds to charge. The yellow one, you know, it was a whole thing. What you have to keep in mind is that I was a super cool kid. <laughs> As you think about all this. so. Uh, I remember unveiling this to my friends, and I uh, showed up and was like, guys, I've got it. Here we go. Sit down. Let me walk you through this thing. It's going to change your lives. Kind of walked through the rules, and the guys were just getting more and more glossy-eyed and confused, and uh, like, like, how are we going to keep these point totals straight while we're hurling balls at each other's heads? And I was like, oh, oh, good idea. So I ran, and I got sticky notepads and gave everyone a sticky notepad and a pencil. <laughs> It's like, you just subtract it as you go. It's fine. Uh, so needless to say, we started, the guys were good sports. We started the game, and it lasted about five minutes. And then everyone's like, this is terrible. Let's just hit each other with these balls. And I was super bummed because I put all this work into this thing. And I was convinced that my way was better. It was more fun. And so I said, guys, you're wrong. I'm going to have more fun than all of you playing this by myself. So I went, and I like was, I think I got dice to like simulate the different characters, and I was playing the thing by myself. This is so much fun over here. Uh, but eventually, like, the point sat in for me that I had totally missed the heart of uh, our childhood games, which are to connect with one another <laughs> and to hang out and to be friends and to have fun and to form relationship. 
uh, I had kind of sequestered myself uh, because I was so com committed to this little form of this thing that I was unable to just do what we were supposed to be doing, which is like be kids together and have a good time and have fun. So eventually I came groveling back and got in on the, on the chaos, uh, which was fun. But I tell this stupid story uh, because I think it's relevant to our walks as Jesus followers. I mean, I'm sure you thought that was where I was going with this. Uh, yeah, the, so often we can take the heady theology, which is super important to have right theology. We can take the, the, the concepts about us and our intimacy with Christ and we can begin to form a version of Christianity that's just separate from the heart of God well, a big part of the heart of God, which is the relationship in the church community, one to another, brothers and sisters, family members together. And it can become this insular and distanced thing. And when it does that, we, we, are, we are missing a significant piece of what it belongs to the people of God. And so with that in mind, let's, let's look at Hebrews real quick. And just to give you some context, Hebrews is this amazingly mysterious book. We don't know who wrote it. It's an anonymous book. Uh, we don't know when it was written. Some people think maybe in the 60s AD, uh, before the temple was destroyed. Some people think maybe the 90s. Whenever and whoever it was, it's written by someone who was deeply familiar with the Old Testament story, the whole way that God had worked throughout history to save his people, and deeply familiar with the burgeoning like New Testament writings and theology and the life of Jesus and what it meant in relationship to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. So they've taken all this and they've, put, they've written this beautiful book that sort of like bridges the gap in all these amazing ways between what God had been doing and what he was doing now in Christ. Um, and so in the section immediately before chapter 10, he spent several chapters uh, writing this thing that's essentially describing Jesus as the true and greater high priest who like the high priest, brings the people into the presence of God, but is the perfect final version of that priesthood. And like the Old Testament sacrifices of animals that, that dealt with sin in their own way, Jesus was the once and for all final, true and greater sacrifice, that by his own sacrifice cleared every barrier between man and God. And so laying out all these big concepts, towards the uh, middle of chapter 10, we'll start in verse 19, uh, the writer of Hebrews wants to start applying some things and getting into what do we do with all this theology. So let's read this, 19 through 25. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So, since all of these things I've been writing to you for the last several chapters, because all these things are true, verse 22, here's some application. Number one, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And here's another one, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you all see the day drawing near. So a couple observations here. Number one, 
he makes the point that love and good works are inextricably tied up together. So genuine love for someone is of course gonna involve an emotional component, a feelings component, an intellectual component, a decisive component. But what this is telling us, and it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament, is that love actually authenticates itself, it validates itself, it shows itself to be genuine in actual loving action toward that person. So it's the same from Jesus to us. Jesus himself in the most like, decisive, self-sacrificial way, he went to the cross to demonstrate his love for us, taking our sin, gifting us his righteousness, laying down his life at great cost to himself to save us, to love us. And it's the same way for us to Jesus as well. In fact, in John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The evidence that we actually genuinely love God is in our obedience to him, our following after him in real practical ways. But that's not the most surprising thing about this passage. I think what, one of the things that's more surprising to start is just how communal it is. So go next slide. It's really easy to take these theological concepts and begin to just apply them for yourself or for me as an individual, but look how communal this is. Therefore, brothers, we have, for us, we have, let us draw near, our hearts, our bodies, let us hold fast, our hope, let us consider, one another, together, one another, you all, in the Greek that's a plural, it's y'all, I wish, wish y'all was more normal, it's, it's there in the Greek, uh, it really is, it's, it's you all, plural. Um, the application is for a people, it's for a people. But even more surprisingly, something that's really interesting, let's go next, ver next slide. When we just zero in, we'll focus on these two verses here for the most, of, most of the time. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Who is doing the stirring up in this passage? At least explicitly in the passage, it's not Jesus. It's, it's actually not even the Holy Spirit. It's one another. It's one another who have the responsibility to stir up, to encourage one another toward love and good works after Jesus. And what, what's going on here is he's using this word, it's a, this Greek word, all alone, which appears, we're gonna look at in a second, all these times in the New Testament that kind of talk about all, just the network of relationships that make up the Christian community. So you to me, me to you, him to her, her to him, like all these little networks, one to another, is what the writer has in view here. Um, this is a major, major theme in the New Testament, how the church is to relate to one another, about what the kinds of relationships that make up church communities are supposed to look like. And I actually, we've talked about this before, I don't think we've ever just like looked at these together and read through, I wanna quickly just read through, there's 60 instances, there may be more, this isn't super scientific, the way we put this together, but depending on how you count, around 60 instances where that all alone or another word, eautois, uh, come together uh, in this context to describe what is it, what did these relationships that we call the church look like? So let's just read them. I'm just gonna read them for you. Um, be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another love one another, and that second one is not a typo, it's because it happens twice in the same verse. 
Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. To live in such harmony with one another. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Serve one another in love. Don't keep on biting and devouring each other, not conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other, bear with each other, forgive whatever you may have against one another, teach one another, admonish one another, Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other, encourage each other, encourage each other, build each other up. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. That's our verse here. Encourage one another. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each should use whatever gift to serve others. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love one another. 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 The call, if you take all these together, you take this whole idea of, of what life in the church, you to me, him to her, them to them looks like. It's a call for each of us to be the kind of people that are opening up our schedules, our loyalties, our homes, our families, and our friendship to the others in the family of God. And it's really important to note that this cannot be outsourced. Someone can't do it for you. This can't be left to the professional ministers. This is not the pastors are to administer these things to the people. This is peer-to-peer, member-to-member, brother to sister, one to another. We could sum this whole thing up actually by saying that one of Jesus' primary avenues for providing love, nurturing, encouragement, accountability, instruction, and change is the person sitting right next to you. It's not the only part of his strategy, but it's one of the primary ways he's interested in forming us to look like him. Let's keep going. So he says, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So let's pause there for a second. So clearly, in the days of the early church, People were tempted to give up. There was difficulty. The idea of doing life together in this way was tiring. And people 
we're tempted to just quit, to bail. And clearly, the same temptation exists today to give up on this vision of life together. Why is that? What are the reasons? Well, there's potentially limitless number of reasons. I wanna talk about four that kinda came to mind for me that seemed timely. So the first is because fantasy and idealism kill our love for real people. Have you ever been in this position? Has your idealized version of something kept you from actually enjoying the thing as it is? Kind of a goofy example for me is, I remember hearing about this movie. Anybody ever see the movie Boyhood? Came out three or four years ago, Oscar nominee, but my favorite director, it turned out, was making this film where he was gonna film, he cast this boy as a six-year-old, and they were gonna film every year for a month They were gonna write a fresh script each year and they were gonna chronicle this family growing up over 12 years. Like what a risk for, I don't know who financed that thing, but they're foolish. It's like, like what if somebody died or like what if somebody wanted to quit the movie? But they made it. And I remember being so hyped when the thing was coming. I'm like, my favorite filmmaker, this is gonna be this transcendent thing, no one's ever attempted this before and the movie came out and I liked it. I thought it was good. But if I'm being honest, I was pretty underwhelmed. It didn't, there was no way for it to reach like the lofty heights that I had for it in my head just based on the premise. Truth be told, when it came out a year later, uh, I, I got it and I watched it again, you know, on home video or whatever. And home video isn't really a term anymore, is that? <laughs> I don't really like streaming. I still buy Blu-rays. Home video, yeah. I'll have to update that. We'll scrub that for the podcast. Uh, but when it came out, I uh, watched it again, and I actually was like, I mean, I'd liked it all along. I was like, actually, I, I think this is a masterpiece. I think this is like one of the best movies I've ever seen, and that's how I feel right now. Uh, it took like softening to the thing that, the, to what it actually was to be able to appreciate it. But a more sinister example of this is what happens with pornography. I mean, Pornography is nothing but a fantasy, a fiction concocted to look like the real thing of sex and intimacy and romance. That as people give themselves over to it, over time, it shapes them to the degree that real sex and real intimacy with a real spouse becomes undesirable. No one can live up to the fiction and the fantasy that's presented. C.S. Lewis kind of gets into this idea in the Screwtape Letters. If you don't know the Screwtape Letters, it's this, it's this book where he's writing from the perspective of a senior demon writing to a young demon about how to tempt his subject. So that's the perspective here, but listen to this. He says, when he gets, he's talking about the subject, when your subject gets to his pew and he looks around him and just sees just that, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided, you're gonna wanna lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression that's lofty like the body of Christ and then the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out a tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. He's highlighting, we have this body of Christ, 
the family of God, the universal church throughout all of history. And then you have the real person sitting next to you. When you insert real people into that beautiful vision, it kind of starts to smell a little bit. Because people stink. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together puts it even more starkly. He says this, listen to this. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. I think he's right. When the idealistic vision has to give way to real, sinful, broken, messy, annoying people shambling through community together, just trusting Jesus to save and trying to follow after him, it's going to be hard. And it's going to be good, but some people will bail. That's number one. Number two is because real diversity is super stretching. One of the most beautiful aspects of Jesus and the New Testament writer's vision for church is this, is this diverse community that transcends all the natural, human, earthly, worldly boundaries that we set up between ourselves. I mean, Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We love that. I hope you love that passage. And in the modern West, it's actually easy to love this idea intellectually. You know, as, as societal values ebb and flow, they're gonna come in more conflict with our faith and they're gonna come in less conflict with our faith at different places and points. And in terms of appreciation of diversity, I think this is something that we can generally say, like culture is, in some ways, like helping us see the goodness of Jesus' vision here. So it's easy to love this idea intellectually. It's much more difficult to actually live it out in our own communities when push comes to shove. Jesus modeled this incredibly well in his own inner 12 disciples. So two names, let's see if this means anything to you. One is uh, Simon the Zealot, and the other is Matthew the Tax Collector. Okay, Simon the Zealot, who are the Zealots? The Zealots were the people who were basically committed in their heart of hearts to political revolution. They were the ones who were on the verge of literally picking up the sword and saying, we're gonna kick our Roman overlords out of Israel because they're oppressing us. They were zealous to remove by force the oppressors from the land. Simon the Zealot. Matthew the tax collector, so they're both Jews. Matthew the tax collector is a Jew who has taken a job with the Roman government to come and collect taxes from his fellow Jews to feed the Roman government and hence its oppression of Israel. What were those dinners like? <laughs> Seriously. I would love to have been a fly on the wall as Jesus tried to navigate these two people, especially in the early days as they're both like, oh, I guess I'll follow this Jesus guy. And seeing these two, like essentially enemies, both viewing each other probably as traitors having to sit and follow Jesus together. What was that like? Well, Jesus himself in his innermost core of disciples, he modeled this kind of community, this kind of diversity that's painful 
It takes time. It takes time where these different groups can come and submit themselves to Jesus and find the ways in which their own ideologies and views are in conflict with him and his kingdom's views. Submit them and learn to like appreciate the other over differences. And as door of hope, as Jesus, God willing, continues to bring more and more diversity to this church across every kind of spectrum we can think of, each and every person here is going to be challenged and stretched in new ways to make space at the table for one another to come and learn what it means to follow Jesus. It will be hard, and it'll be good, and some will be tempted to give up. Number three. Number three is because real relationships are hard work, and this just flows out of the first two, but relationships are easy when they're new, and real depth brings light to disagreement. You know, they call it the honeymoon phase for a reason. It's like, like, like a new, newlywed couple just floating in the bliss of kind of their new life together and the possibility and the ceremony and everything, all the anticipation being fulfilled. And you're just, everything is great and amazing in many cases. <laughs> Not always. But then something happens. Like the butterflies begin to vanish and real life kind of sets in and real conversations start to happen and you actually begin to see what a life with this person is gonna look like in actuality. And it's a good thing, but all of a sudden, your differences begin to show. And your real deep-seated convictions, when they don't line up, you're like, oh, you think that about that thing that's really important to me that I totally disagree with? Interesting. (laughs) Let's figure this out. In fact, if we aren't experiencing conflict in any of our relationships, it's possible that we haven't actually made it past the surface and into any depth with people, I think. Jesus calls us to commit and work through when we hit those snags and we hit those areas of challenge. That's actually where the real good stuff of relationship begins to happen. In uh, Proverbs 12, 17, the writer uses the image of iron sharpening iron. And we all know that image. It's like, yeah, iron sharpens iron. That's a good thing. But have you ever thought about what that image actually entails? It's two pieces of iron like grating against each other and like breaking off the little brittle parts in order to sharpen the thing. It's good. That's, that's a benefit of community. But it's actually, in the very image itself, it should set us up to expect it to be hard. It's like two pieces of sandpaper over time will eventually make each other soft but it's gonna involve like tension and pulling and tearing and hard stuff. Real relationships are hard work. Number four. Number four is because becoming a connoisseur or a curator is easy. And historically, we live in a time where these are both live options for us, where maybe they weren't before in the same way. But by connoisseur, that's, that's an image that again comes from the screw tape letters but I think it's really helpful. It's this idea that people can kind of visit all the churches and a sampling of this and that. Oh, I like the worship at this one, but this one has a great evening teaching, so I'll pop in over there. And ah, that one said something I didn't quite line up with, so I'm just gonna go over here. They kind of offended me, and then ah, the people over there are weird. Once I got to know them, I I didn't wanna be a part of that. You kind of just become this connoisseur. You know the ins and outs of all the churches, and you can sort of pick and choose where and when you wanna go. This is a pretty historically novel thing for us uh, because, I mean, until probably the last several decades, like, church was kind of like, there was a church and you could go and attend it if you wanted to follow Jesus, like, depending on where you lived. 
Praise God in a city like, even a city like Portland, there's so many good and healthy churches. Like, Door of Hope is, does not have the market cornered on gospel preaching good churches. Praise God. And there are good reasons to leave churches. Don't let me, well, that's a conversation for another day, but there are also really bad reasons to leave churches. So that's the connoisseur. The second is the curator. And this is the person who wants to kind of self-curate the perfect worship experience on their own. So they can, this is the kind of person that might say, you know, I just do church in my living room, you know. Saturday morning is my church where I can, I just download the sermons from the speakers that I like. I don't have to listen to this guy like yammering on. I'll just get the, I'll get the pros, I'll get the messages that, on the subjects I'm interested in. I'll curate my own you know, music playlist of worship music so that I don't have to sing the songs that I think are boring or lame or whatever. It'll just be perfectly tailored to me. I'll only read the books that I want to do. I'll find an online group that's kinda has the, that thinks like me and talks like me and experiences their faith like me and kind of keep the others out. My charitable giving only has to go to the things that I'm personally passionate about. I don't have to give to the things that the community has said, we value this. I don't have to make time for boring conversation and I definitely don't have to have time for needy people who are trying to sap away my life and my energy. Does that sound familiar? Sounds kind of nice. <laughs> Sometimes. But it's easy. And you've cut yourself off from the very mechanism, if you do that, that Jesus wants to use to actually make you look more like him. So it's easy to become a connoisseur or a curator. There are more reasons people might find this call difficult, but those are four that I think are timely for us. Let's keep going. So verse, the end of verse 25, he says, but, so don't neglect meeting together as some do, but, encouraging one another. Again, there's that one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day in view there is the same one we were talking about through our Minor Prophet series, the day of the Lord, that day when Jesus returns in power to set everything right. Each day it's closer, and that should motivate us to encourage one another, to keep the faith, to follow after Jesus, to learn what it means to bend the knee to him in every area of life. Don't bail, but commit. Lean in. Make the hard and good choice to take up life together. But there's something implicit in this. This requires, all this one another stuff, it requires something that you can't fake and you can't outsource to somebody else. Just like we said earlier, it requires proximity. To do that stuff requires you being close enough to people to have any kind of shot at being able to do that. We have to be close enough, available enough, spend time enough if we're gonna actually have a shot at this. So I wanna switch gears here. I wanna talk about just two super practical ways Door of Hope is gonna try to push us in this direction this year, okay? First is community groups. Um, look, when we read the New Testament, we definitely see 
a, a need for churches to gather together publicly to sing to God, to hear a biblical teaching, to serve one another in settings like this. That's part of what the New Testament demands that believers do together. But we can also see very clearly that a 400 person gathering like this with tight service times and things to get to and everything else, it's not the ideal environment to push people into those kinds of relationships. To do the one another's that Jesus talks about. So this is why we do community groups and change groups and other smaller gatherings at our church. Like we found that if you can get 15-ish people to commit to meet together weekly in homes and do what the early church did, gather around the scriptures, discuss, discuss biblical teaching, to pray together, to eat together, make time for just relational time, to serve one another. If we do that, we commit to that for a year, usually something just happens. The Lord typically, he just begins to knit people together in relationship, real relationship begins to form where it didn't exist beforehand. And some of you are probably wondering like why each year many of our groups like reshuffle and, and people go and join new groups and leaders are like, oh, we're open to a brand new group of people. Uh, and why we do like random online signups where you can just go and sign up for a group even though you don't know the person, it's actually super intentional. It's because we don't desire for people to just join community groups exclusively with people that they already know. We want to see what happens when strangers, like young and old, male and female, married and single, of whatever race, with whatever background, with whatever struggles, gather together around Jesus and commit. We want to see what kind of surprising relationships he can form if we're willing to receive one another as spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ in that way. So I just want to speak to a few groups in particular. Could do a lot more, but we're short on time. Number one is if you're single, like we know it can be painful to look around the church, especially as it's changed over the last 10 years, and feel like it's become more and increasingly tailored to like people with young families and children. That can be painful. You begin to feel like you're on the outside of like what's really going on and where the real focus is. Or by the same token, if you're older, you might be self-conscious. Even the thought of joining a community group, you're like, man, I don't want to join a community group and be twice as old as the next person in the group. That'd be weird. Will I belong? Will they want me there? Will I want them there? To both groups, I just want to say that your unique personalities, your experiences, your energy, your gifts are wanted and needed. Like, young single people, or old single people, like, the, the young families need your freedom and your vitality and your ability, because <laughs> you're so like bogged down with just like so many familial demands. We need you to inspire us to like follow after Jesus with more fervor. And older folks, like, I need you to be in group with me and speaking, like, from your hard-earned wisdom and life experience so that I don't do stupid things. <laughs> like, you're needed. You're wanted. And we want that mix to come together to be the church. If you're brand new, you might assume, like, oh, man, everybody, like, this church is established. Everybody already knows one another. Like, I'll just be kind of the odd man out, odd woman out, whatever. 
But it's not true. Like almost every community group has people who don't know one another already, people who have been around the church eight years and people who have started coming last week. And that's what we want. This is the context where like new relationships form and people start like taking up this task together. And if you are one of those people that have young kids, you might just think there is no possible way to be a part of a community group. And the reality is there's just not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got a laugh the first service. You guys are like, ah, I guess that makes sense. It can be done. It can be done. So we're always encouraging more and more leaders to make space available for kids at group. We hope that this year there's gonna be more groups than ever that are willing to, even if it's just a couple kids, like yeah, we'll try to make space for a couple kids and figure out how to do it. But even outside of that, like there is no shame. And in fact, it's a great thing if you're a family with kids and you're like, we'll sign up for a group and we might just have to send one spouse like alternating weeks and the other will put the kids down at the house. And maybe once a month you can get a babysitter and go together or whatever. Like, there are ideas and there are options, and if you're confused and like, I don't know how to do this, do you have any ideas, email me or email Pip, and we will like, try to think through, like, let's figure out how we can make this work. Would this work, would this work, would this work? At the end of the day, I wanna be very clear, community groups are not just a program that we do because we're like, well, oh, some people in the church think that's important, and, I guess we should just do it so that some people can be a part of that and whatever. Like, we think if we have, are going to have any shot at all at being that kind of community, this one anothering familial community gathered around Jesus, this has got to be one of our best shots. It's not the only way to do it. It's not the only thing we do, for that matter. But we think this is one of the best opportunities we have to see these networks of relationships begin to form, begin to see people like take ownership over one another's lives in this beautiful way. So my, my plea today is go sign up for one. Uh, Sign-ups are going live today. Some of them are already up. There are more groups will be trickling in over the next week or so. Um, so we expect to have 40-some groups when it's all said and done, maybe more than that, who knows. Uh, there's 10, I think 10 plus change groups. So I think between what we're expecting for community groups and change groups, we should have maybe the most small groups we've ever started like a fall season with. Uh, so there's opportunity. And everything I've just said about community groups applies to change groups. If you think that's the more focused environment for what you need, like that's a great avenue for all this as well. Um, but sign up, sign up. If you have trouble, email us. We'll figure out how to get you in one. We'll go track down another leader and start something. Like, we'll, we want to do whatever we can to help people belong here. Sound good? All right. So there's another one we should talk about uh, that's maybe a little less intuitive, but as Josh shared last week, Door of Hope has a deep desire to become a church that multiplies churches to see spiritual revival break out in Portland and beyond. And as long as I've been around Door of Hope, which is six and a half years or so um, attending, four years on staff, um, there's been an acknowledgement from the leadership that trying to get to bigger and bigger buildings and less and less intimate spaces, uh, it not only kind of creates friction with the heart of the city uh, of Portland, but also like probably create, makes it more difficult to do the kinds of things we're discussing. 
And so with that, in early 2020, we're taking a major step of faith, like as a community, to plant a church. We're gonna plant Door of Hope Northeast in the Northeast Fremont building that some of you know intimately. Uh, my wife, Susanna, and I feel like very much like this is a big step of faith as we step into kind of uncharted territory for us. Uh, to be honest, it's leaving like a ministry job that I adore. Like I've been so honored and, and, and stoked to get to like champion community groups for this community. Uh, to leave a ministry team, the staff, the elders, volunteers that we just love so much. And to honestly just leave a community of people that we think is like utterly unique in the world as far as we've been. Like it's super scary and it's really sad uh, for us. But the vision that Josh and the elders have laid out for multiplying communities that can be more intimate, more relational, and more strategic to fulfill Jesus' great commission is more exciting to us uh, than the prospect of like leaving what's comfortable is scary, if that makes sense. It's still scary, <laughs> but that's more exciting. So over the coming months, we'll be talking more about Door of Hope Northeast and what it's gonna look like and how you can be involved and more invitations to like let us know if you're interested in coming to be a part of it. But for right now, I just wanna mention a few things about like vision related to this new church. Number one is that we wanna plan a church as part of the Door of Hope family just because we deeply love this church and we love its vision, its values, its theology and we want to reproduce like what everything that's healthy about Door of Hope we want to reproduce there from the four pillars to its doctrine to some of its practices. Like, we want to be in step with what's so healthy and wonderful, we believe, about this church. Uh, number two, we want to wholly embrace Jesus' great commission to both see new people come to faith and to see people who are in the faith, like, grow to have serious intentionality about seeing new and old Christians find health and wealth, wealth. <laughs> health and wealth, like that's what it's all about. We're gonna be a prosperity gospel church. So if you're into that, come check it out. No, to see men and women find health and maturity and ministry and deep community. <laughs> Churches historically and statistically have the best shot at reaching the most new people with the gospel uh, in their first 10 years of life. And so we're just gonna trust God that he's gonna be faithful to use that community to like see new people come and fill those pews uh, to trust Jesus for salvation, make the decision to follow after him in community together. And number three, I would just say like we don't have like a super sexy new vision for this thing. What I, the two points I just mentioned are essentially like we wanna do the things that Door of Hope does well and we wanna be about the things that Jesus was about in his great commission. That's not that sexy. What is sexy is the people who will be coming with us. <laughs> That's stupid. What I mean by that, what I mean by that is that like so much of what makes any church feel like it does is the unique mix of people like with their own gifts and their own stories and histories and perspectives and like relational dynamics and like 
love between one another. Like the, and so the exact combination, whoever it is that ends up coming with us and is part of like this team that's gonna make this community happen uh, is going to shape together a culture and a story and a particular kind of warmth in its own way that's gonna declare to the world in its own way that Jesus exists, that, that, that he's king, that he's savior, that he's alive, that he's coming back, and that it's good news for the world. And that's what I get really excited about. Whoever it is, like, we will feel different because it will be its own combination of people by the grace of God and by the providence of God to proclaim Jesus. So, if you live in Northeast, or if you just like, have a desire to be a part of something like new and a little bit wild, uh, or you have particular relationship with me or Susanna, our family, or someone else who's like kind of already committed to going, we just ask you to pray. Like, take some time and pray. Like, Lord, is this something you might want me to be a part of? And as you start leaning that direction, let me know. Email me. If you have questions, let's get together. Let's talk about them. And, and really specifically, as community groups sign up for launch today, um, a few of the groups are gonna be tagged to Northeast. It'll say in parentheses like Northeast Church. Um, if you're strongly leaning that way, we encourage you to sign up for one of those groups so that already like a relational core can be forming even before we have that church going. Uh, we understand like people, it takes time for people to decide. People might ebb one way and come out the other way. And so we understand like community groups are gonna be mixed this year to some degree and it's okay, like, if, whatever group you sign up for, you're not signing, like, a blood oath of any kind, um, <laughs> to be very clear. Uh, but, yeah, if you're leaning northeast, you should sign up for a group that's leaning northeast, as a general rule. So the call is, listen, here at southeast, eventually there in northeast, we want you to come and invest and be a part of this one another thing that can only happen when each and every one of us like steps into relationship. To follow Jesus in community, to actually want to do spiritual good to our brothers and sisters, to know them, to make time for them, and to see what the Lord does. Amen? Well, let's pray. Um, I just wanna close, by, instead of just Praying, I want to actually pray Jesus's part of Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus uh, prays with and for his disciples, and it's just amazing to see like the the plea, the things that are on his heart. And I was just this just kept coming to mind as I was preparing this sermon. So I want to read and pr pray Jesus's prayer that he prayed to the Father for his followers, and ask it for here, us here at Door of Hope. Sound good? Well, let's close our eyes. Jesus says, but now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Father, make it so. At Door of Hope, in Portland, and across your world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Josh from Door of Hope. We're in a period of expanding our efforts as a church to reach our city with the gospel, which includes having moved into our new building as well as pursuing church planting. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church, and we never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help us as we seek to expand our ministry in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your support and prayer. To donate financially to Door of Hope, just head to doorofhopepdx.org and select Generosity and Give Online. Thanks again for listening.